Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming outside today. Today, we're talking with Greg Kazmierski from the great state of Wisconsin and Buck Rub Archery. He'll introduce himself here in a moment. Before we do, if you would like to be on the podcast trying to represent your state for archery and bow hunting, please send me an email at averagejackarchery at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram and leave a comment on YouTube as well. Would love to have you on the podcast representing your great state and representing the great state of Wisconsin. We do have Greg. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nate, and thanks. And you can call me Kaz because pretty much everybody calls me Kaz. I'll call you Kaz then. Everybody else in the podcast <laughs> will call you Kaz. So Kaz, go ahead and introduce yourself. Talk about, because your background is, you know, I've been in archery for, you know, 17 years, but you've been in there for three times as much. So talk a little bit about your experience with archery running the shop up there in Wisconsin and so on. Well, I got into the archery retail business in 1978. Um, actually started out camouflaging painting bows um, for a little, little local shop that was in town. And uh, eventually he brought me in as a partner and eventually I bought him out. And, and uh, so I've been in the, in the industry an awful long time and got to see the transition from recurves to the old uh, bare polar LTDs and all the way through to what we're shooting today. So it's been, it's been a fun ride. I enjoy going to work every day yet. And um, I have the passion for it. I love archery. Yeah. I mean, and you guys up there have also, you know, I, I did, uh, I met with Raven up at the ATA show, did some uh, video shorts for you guys. You guys are also not only just a bow shop, but you guys are also um, patenting and making things as well up there. Yeah, we, for many of the years that I've been in the industry, I go, why can't a company do this? Why can't a company do that? We have issues with this. We have, so, and I would give a lot of the companies, manufacturing companies, my ideas. Some of them would run with them. Some of them wouldn't. And finally, I just said, you know, there's a couple simple things that, um, in my opinion, nobody's addressed. Um, so we we took items in that category and per perfected them. Now, everything we do here is hunting oriented. Um, we never really were big in the target market. Um, everything is geared to hunting in our shop anyways and we're blessed to have a state with a lot of hunters so that's how i could make it work so we're specialized for hunting yeah and that's the way we are here you know in central pa at my shop you know it's 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 all the good old boys whisker biscuits fix pin sights and let's slap a broadhead onto an arrow and go kill a whitetail that's no one's interested in punching paper around here all yeah. the bows that we get are camo. You know, there's yeah. there's no Laguna Teal and Copper Flame where we're at. <laughs> yeah. And those are the guys I prefer working with anyways. Um, you know, they're greatly appreciative when you're helping them out and making them shoot better. And, and uh, I just love seeing their success then too. Right. Right. Yeah, it, the, the transfer over to the woods is way more rewarding than it is to the paper range, at least in my, in my life and my experience with working with people. So yeah. I can totally understand that. So being in the industry for so long, 
you know, and I think I have a lot of knowledge and then I get to meet people like you and, and then I'm like, oh boy, I haven't even scratched the surface yet. And in your 40 some years of being in the industry, I want to pick your brain and talk about, as we talked a little bit about before, kind of the loss of the basic understanding of the physics of archery as it's gone over time from going from recurves to wheel posts to now where we are with super parallel and past parallel limbs and everything. I want you to kind of unpack that a little bit for those at home who might be listening that are new to the sport of archery in general. And the only thing they see today are, you know, these big weird cams and these split limbs and this, that, and the other thing, and these super long risers kind of unpack where the archery industry and the physics of archery started and and where it is now today. Well, uh, there's certain basic principles of archery that have been around for 25,000 years. Um, and people understood those principles, like an arrow paradoxing, and uh, the fletches on the arrow to stabilize that arrow, because that arrow is flexing when it comes out of the bow. Um, the problem is with today's bows, you you don't see that happening. You know they're they're too fast, but the same principles still occur. So. Um, what we found, especially since we manufacture the arrow rest, um, everybody kind of, oh, my rest is bad. Okay, I'm getting contact. The rest is dropping too slow or this or that. And I typically ask them some basic questions. Are your wheels in time? Well, I don't know. They should be. <laughs> Well, if your wheels aren't in time, you're never going to get an arrow to fly. Is your knocking point set so that arrow is perfectly perpendicular to the string? Well, I I don't know. I don't have a bow square. Well, you can't tune without knowing those basics. There's just some basic things you got to start from um, with your platform, especially when you're going to tune. So, and and I, I've seen that that's been lost. Um, for example, over time, laser veins caught on. Everybody's all gotten whole about laser veins, but to be perfectly honest, they do a crappy job of stabilizing an arrow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> nothing close to a feather. If you look at a feather, it's got four times the surface area per square inch at one third the weight of a blazer vein. Um, and when it, you're talking about hunting, it's all about stabilizing that broadhead, okay? So what I've seen over time then is because they don't have their arrows flying good, well, we'll just stick these expandables on there and data, data still hit. Well, the problem is now there's the big trend in the industry. Oh, we gotta have 200 grains on the front of the arrow and a 7% FOC and stuff in order to get penetration. Well, that's nonsense. (laughs) We were shooting through deer with 40 pound recurves. Okay. So, and it's typically a combination of using an expandable head with an arrow that's not hitting the deer square, it's hitting them sideways. Well, you're not gonna get a lot of penetration that way. I don't care what you're shooting. That's right. That's right. Um, and to me, I see that as the big 
it's that lack of understanding. They have a problem, but they're troubleshooting it wrong, what that problem actually is. And typically, it always boils down to tuning. Having that system so it's shooting a straight arrow. So way back in the day, the way we would tune bows, when I first got started, now the bows were slow then, but we'd have a couple different size arrows and you know, you'd stand behind the guy and watch the arrow fly. You're right. Hey, that one's not flying very good. Here, try this one. You know, and that's how you would tune it. When he finally got an arrow that was shooting straight, um, there you go, that's your arrow. Obviously, over time, as bows got faster, you can't see that stuff anymore with the naked eye. You can't see what's really going on coming right out of the bow. Um, and that's when paper tuning became popular. We were paper tuning bows way back in the mid 80s, probably one of the first in the country to do it for customers. And uh, we would just hang sheets of newspaper up. You know, newspaper was cheap, and we had two clothes pins and up there and shoot. Um, so, but even more critical now is paper tuning because the bows keep getting faster and you cannot see what's really going on. So people are visualizing that arrow going through that rest. Well, there's no way it should be getting contact, so the, the rest must be slow. Well, the arrow's going through arced. <laughs> Okay, it's not going straight through the way you visually look at it. Um, and I've even seen bow companies, they get kind of tight with their their windows and risers. Half the time the contact's coming off the riser, it's not even coming off the rest. So those things all matter. Um, and it, it really always, from what I see, boils down to the basics. So we tune bows a lot different than any other place does. Um, we make sure that everything is where it's supposed to be on the bow. Okay, the wheels are a perfect time. That arrow is knocked so it's perfectly perpendicular to the string and the rest is that center shot. We never touch the bow again after that. Everything else is done by manipulating the arrow spine. And the biggest problem is the shooter. So we, we had a tuning machine out way back in the mid eighties. Um, and most of the boat companies actually bought them from us back then. Um, the problem with that machine was it showed up every single flaw in everybody's boat. And at a point, the manufacturers didn't even like them being out there yeah. <laughs> because we were measuring riser um, reflex. We were measuring limb oh, deflections sure. um, when we were tuning, and you could see it all on that machine there. Oh, my God, this riser really, really bends when you shoot, you know. Um, limbs at that time. They were just starting to come out with fiberglass limbs on bows, and they were they were putting them on scales. They were just miking them to spec. Oh, okay. So the limb deflections were way off on a lot of them, um, from top to bottom limb. Well, that stuff all affects 
you're not going to pull it up or pull it down when those deflections aren't there. Today, they're a lot more precise with all that kind of stuff than they were back in the early days. But we had bows that were virtually untunable. Correct. We, we'd be flopping limbs from top to bottom and shimming stuff and doing everything we could to get these things to shoot. Um, I will say today's bows are much easier um, because of the precision they're made with. Um, but the basics still hold true. You have to have those wheels in perfect time. Um, you have to have that center shot. And, yeah, so a lot of what I see on tuning, you know, if you're getting the tail left hair, move your rest to the right. Well, you're actually detuning if you're doing that. You're detuning that bow because the bow is designed to shoot center shot. So you'll see guys, I saw one thread on Archery Talk one time, the guy's asking, I'm right on at 20 and at 30, I'm two inches left and at 40, I'm four inches left and at 50, I'm eight inches left. There was a hundred people that responded to that guy and never did anybody get it right. What his problem was and i'm he said i'm shooting perfect bullet holes while he detuned the bow to get those bullet holes covering up some other issue and so now his arrows in one plane and his line of sights in another plane that's all that it is um, so we we try to tune every bow possible to have stuff set where it's supposed to be set on the bow and then we manipulate the other two factors, the arrow spine and the shooter. Right. It's uh, it's interesting because this is kind of like uh, harkens back to really the olden time. Like what people forget is that recurve bows, you did not tune a recurve. You tuned the arrow and the shooter to the recurve. You could not tune. You, you Maybe you could cut the arrow shorter, cut it longer, add more point weight, try a different spine. That's how you tuned a recurve bow. Exactly. And that's how that had to work. Now, I will say, and anybody who listens to me and watches my channel knows that I do the detuning process, right? I do yeah, move my rest. Right. And I do the detuning process. But when it comes to uh, cam timing, I don't touch it. Once it's perfect, it's perfect. Once my tiller is perfect, once my four, and the form really is the biggest problem that people completely ignore. Face pressure can completely ruin, your grip can completely ruin whatever tune that you have. And that's something I'm sure, I mean, I see it day in and day out. I imagine in your years, decades, constant, constant it, issue. And the biggest one, face pressure guys can, you know, you tell them once and they got it figured out. Correct. But hand position, man. That, Different animal. That's the tough one. Yeah. For guys to understand. And the way we try to illustrate it to the to guys out there is uh, I'll pull the guy's bow back and say, here, press on that string. And they'll press on it and it's just mush. And I go, now, because the bow turns to mush, that slightest little movement with your hand is turning the whole bow. Right. And taking your string out of alignment and your bow out of alignment. Well, you know, if the guy's got the hands of a stonemason, it's hard to get him to be 
subtle. Yeah, if you, if you <laughs> got a manual feel. labor, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. and so, and you got to feel it. It's something you got to feel. But so that is the biggest issue we have with tuning. But it is also the biggest cause of left-right tears. Yes, by far. Uh, now, cam lead also had a big effect on that, and until recently. There wasn't much you could do about Cambly. You know, Bowtech came out with that bow now where you can actually move the wheel back and forth um, to get that cam lead right. No, really, all you're trying to do is get three points in perfect alignment when you pull that trigger. It's the arrow rest, the string at static, and the string at full draw. If those three are all in perfect alignment, you're going to get good arrow flight. You're turning the bow and taking the static position and string out of alignment with the rest, you're going to get terrible arrow holes. But easier said than done. But it's interesting to me that people, because they don't understand the basic principles of archery, they jump to conclusions about contact or they jump to conclusions about. Why my arrow is tail and right or tail and left, uh, dude? It might be you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's uh, that is that is the biggest thing that even a seasoned shooter such as yourself or a seasoned shooter such as me, I I, I still struggle with grip pressure. I really do. Oh, I yeah. struggle with and when I change over bows or I go for a longer axle to axle or I'm having a different holding weight. You know, maybe I'm shooting seventy five instead of eighty five percent. Everything changes. The grip can change, and it's and it's micro adjustments of grip change can ruin the tune complete. And every shot could be completely different. So I'll give you a little tip that we use here. <laughs> um, guys have a hard time getting that feel and staying consistent with that feel. So something we started doing, I don't know, probably seven eight years ago, we put a piece of masking tape on their riser, right in line with their sight pins. And then we have them make reference to where the cables are in relation to that riser. Now they have a visual. So they pull it back, they're looking through their peep. Okay, adjust and get those cables on that line that we drew, okay? Boom, you should split all. Now they have something they can take home with them to work on refining that consistency with that feel of the ball and it's it's really simple you know we've had people tell us oh you should patent that and sell it i said how are you going to sell something that a piece of masking tape i don't think you're going to sell this is special buck rub archery masking tape <laughs> right. so but i'm telling you for for your average kind of shooter that is a real big help to them and the guys just rave about it you know when they Geez, then I took the bow out on the range and I never shot so good in my life. Yeah, because you were doing this every other shot. That that's what we do with tuning. Now, tuning also when carbon arrows came out, things got a little bit more difficult. Back when Easton made 50,000 sizes of aluminum, there was always a spine that worked. You could go from Right. You could go from a 370 down to a 290, and there'd be 10 arrows in between right. those two those two numbers. And today, it's hard to find 
I I only know of one 450 spined arrow out there. Right. Okay. Um, so it's difficult to get those spines because of just the process of manufacturing carbon and the size of the mandrels and all that kind of stuff. So because we don't have all those options, we use the length of the arrow to manipulate the spine. And so we have all the arrows we sell cut off in one inch increments. So if I'm working with a guy and gee, I'm getting a little tail high, well, let's try it an inch shorter and a little stiffer and see if that takes down. No, it goes worse. Okay, let's try it an inch longer, boom, until we get it. And so, you know, we got guys that go out of here with arrows that are four inches hanging over, but that's what it took to get that spine perfectly matched. So you won't you won't even adjust the rest for up and down? Nope. You leave it dead nuts. So it's not just a left right, it's just it's the up and down too. Right. Interesting. And it's all the arrow play then and how it's flexing. It's all the arrow play. No kidding. See, that's and, fascinating. And, well, and to me, it's fascinating. It, to, it so if people that go to your shop, it's life. <laughs> right. Easton made a video years back, years ago, um, with high speed cameras. And at that time, high speed cameras the with the light bulbs were a thousand degrees. <laughs> These guys would go in there and they'd shoot an arrow quick and get out of there because they were burning up. And and at the time they ran, they jumped to some erroneous conclusions. <clears throat> and they decided that when you use a release, the flex in the arrow is up and down. Okay. And they they concluded it was the release that caused that. Okay. Well, if you took a close look at the film footage, it wasn't that. And we were selling white bows at the time, and they were the first ones to come out with string cables. You could see the knock point jump up and down on that high-speed video. I go, oh, that's don't, – don't blame that on shooting with a release. That bow's out of time. Yes. <laughs> And you can't hide anything from a high-speed camera. No, you, know? you can't. And uh, so if your your knock point travel is perfect, there shouldn't be any up-and-down adjustment. The thickness of the arrow is there. You're not driving the rest in or down if, if that knock point travel is perfectly straightforward. The only other time I see guys have trouble with up-and-down tears that's a form issue other than a spine issue is guys that have a tendency to heal the bow. And it's much harder to duplicate that every time. And I know some of the best target shooters in the world shoot that way. Well, my hat's off to them, but, but I'm dealing with your guy off the street. Right. And he can't duplicate that. Well, and when you say heal a bow, for those people that might not know at home, describe what you mean by heal a bow when it comes to the grip pressure. Well, there's three wrist positions that you can shoot a bow in, okay? There's high wrist, and that used to be popular way back in the 70s and 80s. Well, a lot of recurves were, were built with the handle, right. very high and wrist. To minimize that torque, okay? Yes. Then there's straight wrist. That's what I try to tell guys to shoot because it's just the easiest to relax your hand because 
everything is bone on bone. And then there's healing the bone where your wrist is below the your hand. Now, that feels really good and steady, but it's really difficult to manage that torque. The other thing is the grip on a bow is always on an angle. So if you don't have that heel pressure at the same spot up and down every time, one time the bow is going to kick more down than the other time. Um, right. So we try to get people when they're feeling that hand position to straighten that wrist out and slightly tip up, but it's a feel thing. So they feel all that pressure right in the deepest part of the throat of the grip. Now you've isolated it to the smallest possible point on the grip, and it's just easier for them to feel it and figure out and be consistent. With That's right. Um, Thanks so, for taking the time to explain that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> And I'll tell you, that's one of the things you never see. Uh, they people that say, "Oh, you got to shoot this way," or "Oh, you got to shoot that way," but they don't tell you why. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Um, so, and that's part of what I was talking about here, not understanding the physics of archery. Today, it's more. Well, I read that some guy shoots this way, so I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna do. Okay. Um, and that's with the, vi the video age and all that, you know, there's all kinds of information or misinformation out there. So, so speaking of misinformation and myths, I want to talk about one of the points that we had written in our outline, dispelling some of the myths related to a basic hunting setup. And I, there, there are myths coming out of our ear holes with this, and I've heard a lot of them, and you've definitely heard more. So I want to kind of pick your brain and, and hear your and have some banter back and forth about some of these these myths of a of a basic hunting setup. Okay. Well, where do I start? I don't know. <laughs> I'm good. Okay. Well, as several of my pet peeves, and I watch loops develop along the way, okay? And, but when you ask somebody, so what's that loop doing for you, okay? Besides shortening your effective draw length by three quarters of an inch, um, besides wearing your string underneath the serving, because as soon as you cut a loop off, you can see it's wearing the string, just like shooting off the string. Besides the fact it's harder to hook up quick when a deer comes in, tell me what's the advantage to a loop? <laughs> And nobody ever can. Yeah. But I gotta have one. <laughs> so that's a myth because you don't have to have a loop to shoot a bow and shoot a bow accurately. So now, so do you do you not install it then for people, or do when people ask, do you install it? Well, we'll tell them the pros and cons, and no, we'll put loops on. Okay. Um, but but we'll also tell guys, look, for hunting, I'm telling you, to hook up on a string is a lot easier and a lot quicker than it is to find that loop with your fingers and try and, and you're taking your eye off the deer and you're nervous, and you're shaking. And I said, I was hitting it on the string and you're on. Right. So I think Bill Winkie's probably one of the most famous current guys that still doesn't shoot with a D loop. Yeah. I think he's one of the ones. See, so let's explain why loops came out. Cause we put them on bows years ago long before they were popular. 
metal ones uh, too. And the reason we put them on is because the knocks at the time, any knock on the market was designed so the string was going through it this way, perpendicular to it. Okay. Well, when you draw the bow back, that string's going like this and it would pop the arrow off the string. So it was really a knock issue that first started the loop problem. And so you'd occasionally we'd get a guy, you know, a 33 inch draw guy that that string angle was so intent, boom, his arrow would fall off every time he'd pull it. So we just said, oh, let's throw a loop on there, you know, and see what happens. And so that was the first time we started putting any kind of loops on was to solve an equipment problem that was a result of they haven't caught up with the times yet of shoot and release. Because when you shoot a release off the string, the string is going through the knock on a really steep angle. And the shorter, the steeper it is. Whereas with the fingers, you had two below and one above, and it really right. flattened out the string and it didn't pop it off. Yeah. Right. So that's really where we first started using loops. Target shooters first started using them because the original target releases, the old hot shots and the Fletchmatics, and the loop was on the release. That's right. <laughs> That's right. People okay. don't know that. Yeah. And so then somebody goes someday, hey, I'm just going to tie mine on the string and now I don't have to worry about it. And so that's really where they came from. But they don't, they're not going to help your shooting any. They're not going to hurt your shooting. But I'm a firm believer, especially with ladies and kids, to get them shooting off the string because I want that extra inch of uh, draw cycle on it. Right. Yeah, if you think about it, for the folks at home might be listening, is that when you add that D-loop, you don't need that extra string length. Your draw length can actually be shorter. Like I, you know, I shoot a 31 inch draw length and I probably, if I took off my D loop, I could be pushing 31 and a half, almost 32 to actually right. get to that full draw, that full comfort. And with a lady or a kid, in particular, if you want to start bow hunting, I don't know. Do you guys have a, a poundage restriction in Wisconsin with 30, bow hunting? Yeah, 30, 30. Yeah. See, we're 35. And if you can take a lady that's shooting 23 and get her to shoot 24 at 35 or 40, that inch might not mean, seem like a whole lot, but it can mean a whole lot when you talks to punching an arrow through a whitetail. Exactly. And so I try to get people set up where they're going to get the most out of their bow for whatever weight they can handle mm -hmm. um, for hunting, because that's what it's all about for hunting. You want as much energy as you can get. So, so that's one of the big myths. Um, peeps without a tube. Everybody thinks, oh, that tube is old school. Uh, no. It works. <laughs> Peeps originally started without a tube. And they were such a headache flipping around and turning on guys that somebody came up with the bright idea, hey, why don't we put this rubber bungee on here? <laughs> so really, Peeps with a tube were an advancement from what now everybody wants to put on their bowl, <laughs> which is a peep without a tube. Right. But they're still living with the same headaches that that thing turns. Temperature can affect that peep rotation. 
Over time, the string stretch is affecting that peak rotation. The let off of the bow. Like right. you get you get to 90% let off, like you were saying earlier, and the strings mush, it's gonna follow the twist of the string and it's gonna right. twist left, right, right, left. Yep. And and back in the day, you know, I say this at the shop too, when we have people come in, they have an older bow and they're shooting 8125, um, uh, one of the older stringer materials you know, that stretched a lot more than string materials of today. And they're like, I want to try to get a, a regular peep. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that tube peep. There's nothing wrong with it. Because 100% of the time, that thing's going to come back straight. Well, for your average guy that he's not messing with his equipment all the time, he doesn't have a bow press. You know, what is that guy going to do when he's out and he he's up north, I don't know if you guys go up north in Pennsylvania or out west, <laughs> but in Wisconsin you go up north. Yeah. And uh, that peeps turned on him. He's got to find a place with a bull press to get it straightened out. Um, it's going to cost him a day, a half a day of hunting. So again, I'm trying to set people up for hunting where they're going to have the least amount of problems. Of course, then you always get the guy, oh, yeah, I, I just hate having to change that tube. It breaks on you. I go, I'm looking at it. It's all dry rotten. I said, well, it must stay out for quite a while. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, yeah, but it broke. Well, gee, put a new one on every year. It's a buck ninety nine. Yep, carry like a carry like what is it like a foot long, maybe at the yeah. most eighteen inch piece. Keep it in your pack. It weighs half an ounce and pop it on. Right. You can pop it on in the woods. It's not difficult. So, I, a cute little story. I had a guy come in, and he wanted his tube peep taken out, and we put one in for him. And I said, well, you're going to have to take it out there on the range because we tell them up front, it's going to be turning, especially in those first few shots. And then we'll reset it. So because we told him it was going to do that, he didn't want to come back and say, yeah, exactly what you said is happening. But I look and he's shooting the video archery range and he's got his girlfriend twisting the string. <laughs> So he can see the target they shoot, and he would not come in, back in and say to get it there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going. So I I happened to see him, and I said, uh, "So you're going to take her hunting with you?" Yeah. <laughs> so. Honey, I'm at full draw. Turn it. Turn it. <laughs> so I mean, and why go through that headache when there is something out there? that can alleviate that problem for the average guy i wanted to i have to pick your braid on on this on this dispelling archery myths because i'm sure as a shop owner you're getting a boatload of it i in the social media realm i'm getting a boatload of it is this heavy arrow fos high foc dr ashby out the wazoo all that sort of stuff i want to get your old school opinion because because when i started now i'm not that old but when i started shooting it was aluminum arrows and it was 500 plus grains, you know, in a 125 NAP Thunderhead Muzzy or iShop Magnus, but the same rule applies. And four inch veins, four inch feathers, and we were blowing through critters no problem. But now all of a sudden, we've forgotten that we used to shoot heavy arrows. And now it's like, oh, heavy arrows are cool, you know, but now we're just kind of getting back to what we always used to do. I kind of want to pick your brain on this. I don't have a problem with guys shooting heavy arrows, but. Geez, guys, 
that's why all this technology is out there. They came up with carbon arrows with a better weight to stiffness ratio. The cams store more energy. Um, when we first started shooting our indoor leagues in our original store location, guys would have a pin set for 10, 15, and 20. And there would be a quarter inch gap between those pins with the setups we were shooting at that point in time. And I'm not making that up. And looks like you're shooting and, beach balls. Right. And people just don't understand the advantage now to be able to put a pin at 25 and shoot from zero to 30. That's a huge advantage when you're out there hunting. I mean, I shot over and under more darn deer when I first started bow hunting than probably anybody because you didn't guess that yardage right. You used the wrong pin um, because there was so much gap between them. Um, that was That's what all the technology advancements have been all about. As far as energy, um, I used to shoot real heavyweight bows, 80, 90 pound bows. Back when the Model T, Jennings Model T. And was 65% let off. Uh, yeah, if that. Right. Yeah. No, 35. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was doing that because I wanted to try and get 60 foot pounds of kinetic energy. I had to shoot that kind of weight to get 60 foot pounds of kinetic energy. You, you can take a bow today and get 60 foot pounds of kinetic energy at 52 pounds. Right. With the light arrows and all that. So you have the energy and you have the speed. Um, and to me, that's a win-win. If you're a little off on your yardage guess, um, you're probably still gonna make a good shot on that animal. Now, to me, if a guy thinks he's having trouble with penetration, he should go back to his setup and figure out if he's in two. <laughs> to me, that that's all it is. Because I've got ladies that have worked for me that shoot and get pass-throughs on elk with 42 pounds. So, and they weren't shooting some heavy arrow. They were shooting a... a the lightest spine carbon arrows you could get at the time, right? Which is a 500 spine arrow. So um, now some of the companies have 600 spine arrows. You can even get better flight out of them. But and the the FOC, all the arrow companies and broadhead manufacturers, that FOC is built into a hundred grain head or 125 grain. That's why they're 100 grains. <laughs> you have adequate foc when you're shooting 100 grain head on a carbon arrow so yeah that that's and i know we're hearing it a lot too it's kind of the craze now and i we had a call today on a guy uh what kind of 210 grain broadheads you got dude <laughs> no one we makes those we have none because nobody makes them yeah long <laughs> long gone are the 165 grain bear razor heads right. i remember shooting those they don't yeah. they don't make them that they don't make them that way for a reason anymore right so you can get your setup all tuned with that foc and 200 grains on the front end and what, but what good's it going to do you you can't even buy a broadhead um so yeah i it's 
people being led down these rabbit holes that are, in my opinion, this. Um, and I'm not going to say that it's wrong that the more weight you have and the more front of center you have isn't a it's not a bad thing, but it's not a necessary thing. Well, I appreciate your perspective on that because it's nice to because it's nice to talk to people that have seen it have seen it all and uh, and can you know have gone from wood to aluminum and carbon and everything else. And, you know, seeing broadheads that look like monoliths, now it's what we have with mechanicals and smaller cut-on-contact fixed blades and everything and be able to chime in on that. So I appreciate that. Well, my, my arrow of choice back in the day when I was shooting at heavy weight was the 2219. Okay. And they were heavy. That's like 13 grains per inch almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But... It was only a 2219 because that was the only arrow spine that would shoot out of my bow. I didn't shoot a 2219 because I wanted that weight. That's the only way I could get an arrow stiff enough. So that's how life has changed since that point in time. And I, I'll take my speed, and I'm not a speed freak. I'm not shooting 350 feet a second. But if you're up there around that 300, feet a second range and I shoot fixed blade two blade broadheads magnus stingers I can get them to fly all day long yeah um because the arrows are tuned so that's that's the old school in me coming out yet oh yeah broadhead. <laughs> well I wish there were I wish there was more old school I love the magnus stuff I I'm shooting the 125 stinger four blades this year I've been shooting the black hornets for a while and uh, they're just built like tanks. And it just looks like something Fred Bear would have shot. And that yep. just kind of rings. That resonates with me a lot. So It does. Actually, I was fortunate enough. I got to hunt with Fred Bear a couple of times. Oh, really? At Grouse Haven. And that brings me up to one of the things we had on our list. Archery is the gateway to hunting. I was just about to segue to that. So you beat me to it. Okay. I appreciate well, it. <laughs> I happened to meet Fred Bear when we, we ran an archery show at our county fairgrounds. Um, it was kind of like a deer and turkey expo or that type of thing, but it was just archery. And so for the first year we were going to run it, I said, God, we, we got to get some celebrities here. I said, you know what? I'm going to just call Fred Bear and see if he'd be interested. <laughs> I called up Bear Archery. He picks up the phone. I, you know, they patched me through to him. I said, Fred, you don't know me from Adam, but we're putting an archery show on in Wisconsin, and these are the dates. Would you be interested in coming as a speaker? He was ecstatic. <laughs> and awesome. he goes, oh, I'll do better than that. And he sent his Kodiak brown bear and had it trucked up and everything. And so I got to know him pretty well. And for somehow he could see my passion for archery. And so I got to go on some hunts with him. So we were having cocktails one night after the hunt. And he, Fred was talking about his campaign at the time, which was become a two-season archer. They believed they were converting people from gun hunting to bow hunting, which they were at that point in time. Okay. And he says, well, gun hunting is the gateway to bow hunting. And I said, Fred, I disagree with you. 
but I'm this 27 year old kid talking to 80 year old. Right. Lecturer, and I'm disagreeing with them. <laughs> and I said, well, Fred, tell me this. I said, how old were you when you first put a string on a stick and were winging arrows at chipmunks in your backyard? And he goes, oh, five or six. And I said, huh, would your mom let you take the 22 out and do that when you were five or six? And he goes, no. I said, so archery is the gateway to hunting. Every little kid had a bow. Yep. And they still do. And I see it in my store all the time. It's got soccer mom approval. There's a certain romance with the ladies that it's acceptable for the kids to do. And I truly believe it's the gateway to hunting is archery. So, and he kind of had to agree with me that, uh, well, all right, you're right. But right now we're trying to market archery to people that got money to spend. <laughs> well, that's also true. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to, so, you know, I, I got his campaign, but I wasn't going to let that statement stand that gun hunting was the gateway to archery. Because I knew I started with a bow just plinking around with oh yeah we all did we yeah. all did yeah and and i think that's the way it is with a lot of the kids today so yeah because i remember you know we all had the stick and string you know take the shoelace off you know <laughs> flop around shoot at some rocks make some sticks you know if you were lucky you could steal a, a spool of thread out of your mom's cabinet find some feathers somewhere or anything yeah. we used to take ferns yeah. and make like big flu flu arrows you know yeah. just to try to get them to just try to get them to fly right and uh yeah just just anything and and i'll also say i'll ask you this because you know you've been you know in the shop and working around a lot now granted your demographic is not target archery but do you have people that have come into the shop and just want to shoot a bow because it looks like a fun recreational sport and then they end up bow hunting I know here in PA, hunting is just so, ing I mean, we take their days off, their holidays here in PA for bow hunting, right? We take the first two days of gun season off, you know, that sort of stuff. Do you see people that want to come in just recreationally that end up bow hunting or is it always, they're always coming into bow no, hunting? Some, some of them convert. Um, some of them start out thinking they're only going to shoot recreationally and then when and and usually I think that's a lack of self-confidence that they can even do archery. Then when they find out they can, and then they start to get better, gee, maybe I will think about hunting. Um, they they don't have the confidence. And, you know, everybody's greatest fear when they get into it is wounding an animal. So, um, but we have a lot of recreational archers that shoot in our store that don't hunt. Um, we just don't have a lot of the target because our range and stuff isn't set up for target stuff. It's it's 3D and yeah, big old blocks, the four by four blocks mixed in that you can't, you know, a target shooter isn't gonna be shooting at those yeah. things. Um, so we're just not set up for it because it's always been our business model. We're catered to the hunting side. So as long as hunting stays around. We should be okay, but I worry about that sometimes. Yeah. I'm also on our state's natural resources board that oversees the DNR, sets policy for our DNR. And uh, <clears throat> that's been an interesting ride because it used to be in DNRs, 
you got a job at the DNR because you were a hunter and a fisherman and an outdoors person. And it's not that way anymore. So the hunting traditions and that kind of stuff, we're hanging on by a thread within the agencies. Um, So that's a constant battle we have to be aware of and why I got involved at that level. so that I could always be there defending hunting too. So, yeah. So one last thing I want to touch on before we wrap up the episode, and we talked about it before we started recording the podcast, but that was about the addition of crossbows into the archery, at least for us here in PA, I don't know when it started in Wisconsin, but here in PA, it's been a little over a decade, about a decade ago when they allowed archers, all archers, not just disabled and veterans and kids to use crossbows um and how it's kind of changed in some ways for the positive but in the negatives as well and i want your perspective particularly wisconsin because the way you guys handle crossbows is a lot different than most of the country particularly here in pa where it's one season for both vertical bows and crossbows i want your perspective on that well in any state where the crossbow push came from the crossbow lobby there was always tremendous resistance from the archery people and the archery people got accused of oh you're just selfish and you don't want anybody in the woods and that wasn't their fear or concern the concern that archers had is that if we classify crossbows the same as archery equipment um, it could jeopardize our seasons that we work so long to get. That was the fear of the archery places um, and archery clubs and even the national organizations like Pope and Young and all that. They were they were fighting crossbows because they were anti-crossbow. They were fighting crossbows for the threat that it could present to their seasons. So we had the fortunate we were a little later to the dance getting into crossbows in Wisconsin. So we were able to see what what truly happened in Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania. And even though there wasn't good data, because to this day, you can't, Pennsylvania can't tell you how many crossbow hunters there are and how many bow hunters there are. They're all lumped together. So <clears throat> it got to be a bloody battle here, just like in any other state with crossbows. And I talked to the bow hunting organizations and stuff and said, so what really is your concern? And that's what they said it was. And I said, well, so if statutorily we had the crossbow license, an archery license, a crossbow season, an archery season defined separate in statute, now if the crossbow thing takes off and they're killing too many deer or whatever the blame's on the crossbows as soon as we came up with that compromise in wisconsin's bill we had the support of the bow hunting organizations everybody was singing kumbaya and we got the bill passed okay problem was crossbows at the time were sold and oh it's going to add all kinds of new hunters and People that could pull a bow, which uh, with a 30 pound minimum, that isn't many. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, but because we had separate license sales data and separate harvest data, it's been plainly obvious the crossbows are a lot more effective than a, a conventional bow, which anybody that was being honest would know, <laughs> okay? We were just not being honest as an industry <laughs> with ourselves. Right. You know, it was looking at the quick buck from a lot of perspectives. and But I think it's doing irreparable damage. And you're seeing it now raise its ugly head in states like Michigan, where um, the gun hunting side of things are feeling slighted that those bucks are all dead before they even hit the woods. So there was a bill put out to add an additional 10 days to the gun season, which would start it on November 5th, okay? Um, well, obviously if that happens, both archers and crossbow hunters lost 10 days of the rut. <laughs> is yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and Ohio, I read an article that they're concerned 52% of their harvest now is coming from the archery season. They're concerned about their gun hunters and why aren't we making gun hunting license sales? And, um, and in Wisconsin last year, 42% of our buck harvest occurred before the gun season with only 22% of the license sales. So it's a disproportionate amount and so the gun hunters start to see that, and there's way more of them than there are archers. And so they're going to want to have that pushback at some point in time, but it's already beginning to start here. So, but we have the ability in Wisconsin to just shorten the crossbow season and not shorten archery season. But it's going to be a bloody battle, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you guys are, are more than a one buck state, right? Right. Yeah, see, we here in PA are only a one-buck state, and then also we have pretty stingy antler restrictions, which are there any such things in Wisconsin? No, there's yeah. no antler restrictions. We are a two-buck state, uh, and I don't think we could change that anymore <clears throat> because financially for the state agency, <clears throat> that revenue stream from having two seasoned hunters is built into the system now. So you can uh, only hunt, you can only harvest one animal in one season. Like I can't right. harvest both my bucks in archery season. No. I have to do one in gun, one in archery. Right. Okay. Now in Michigan, they started out that way. They, you, you could actually harvest two bucks during the archery season. Oh, okay. But they kind of got away from that. They, they started seeing the handwriting on the wall there. Yeah, yeah. That, that would have created a riot. You know? Right. So, so uh, and I don't care what anybody says. When it comes to deer hunting, it's about the buck. People are driven by shooting a buck. Yes. And I don't know what it is, but it was, it's been that way. I mean, the tribes here in Wisconsin, the, they had all kinds of stuff made out of the horns of bucks. I mean, it's just, just human nature that you harvest the bucks. Um, so it's that almighty buck harvest is that is what's a hard thing to balance. Well, for decades, the success rate 
and a portion of harvest that archers took was exactly even with their proportion of license sales. Um, and the archery groups in Wisconsin were worried, gee, what happens if this equipment keeps getting better and better? Well, it's tapered off now. But they were worried about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> going, if our success rate gets too high, we're going to lose some of our season. So it, it's that subtlety and that balancing act that the industry didn't look at uh, when we just jumped all in our crossbows. So, and I'm, I'm concerned of the long-term ramifications to bow hunting. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, being in Pennsylvania, we've seen a lot of influx of people switching over to crossbow. And like you said, we have no idea what, cause it's just an archery stamp. You know, the archery stamp doesn't get you extra deer. It just gives you the ability to hunt with archery equipment and crossbows are lumped in. Now, since we've allowed crossbows, we have expanded dramatically the amount of archery stamp sales that we've had. But we don't know how many of that is crossbows, how many of that is vertical bows. People kind of do, as you say, the romanticizing soccer mom approved. A lot of kids are getting into the vertical bows as well, watching a lot of people on YouTube and seeing how cool it is and everything. And then you have a lot of the guys that also want to shoot with a crossbow as well. I don't know for us here in PA, like what our ratio is, because we have so many gun hunters as well. I mean, I know Wisconsin, it is deer camp is a tradition in of itself. Same thing here with Pennsylvania. And I couldn't tell you the numbers off the top of my head, how many deer are harvested in archery season as compared to the firearm season. I think the firearm season are still winning pretty hard because um, your firearm season's concurrent, right? Like you, you have, you can harvest either gender, either sex during the firearm season. Well, if you have an ambulance tag. Okay. But like there's, so there's no, see like here in PA, we have been a split, you know, one week of buck only. And then the second week is buck and doe combined. And so that first week was, if you're going to get a buck, now's the time to do it. Because by the time people start doing deer drives for week number two, <laughs> good yeah, luck. Because yeah. it's brown, it's down that yeah. second week. And it's a hard time getting them out of their holes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> After a week of pressure. It's yeah. a war zone out there. Yeah. So, yeah. no, that we're very similar, except that we're not a one-buck state. Um, and that's always a balancing act, too. Do we have enough bucks on the landscape to, to satisfy all these different user groups um, yeah. and so that they feel they're getting a fair shake? Yeah. So, um, but, you know, for years, it was pretty well in balance. Now, the crossbow thing's disrupted that balance a little bit. Where it's going to go, I don't know. I, I'm not anti-crossbow. Never have been. As a matter of fact, I helped get the disabled crossbow bill passed, our lesser weapon bill passed, our over 65 bill passed. And I, I'll never forget the year that it, we got the over 65 bill passed. And we had old guys coming in and they were like little kids again. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I get to go, I get to go bow hunting again. You yeah. Know? And they were all excited and it, it was just fun to see. I want the more people we have participating, and I don't care whether it's archery, crossbows, or gun, the better off the industry is. Amen to that. It's that simple. Amen <laughs> so. to that. Well, Kaz, on those words, I'm going to wrap up this episode. 
I greatly appreciate you coming on. Give us a plug for Buck Rub Archery. Where can we find your stuff, website? Um, you're probably not handling the social media platforms, but the website and where can we, yeah, we can find your stuff at Lancaster. Yeah. Uh, Lancaster and Weston Archery are archery distributors that carry it. And uh, you can go to our website, which is buckrubarchery.com. And all our products are listed on there. And, and we're, a, we're a retail store. We're a pretty big retail store. Um, but we got into, you know, it's been a lifelong dream of mine to let's make some of these products and make them right. And our, our big one is called the Magna Drop Arrow Rest. Um, no springs in it, no triggers, just magnets. And it drops away. It's, because it's so dependable, we put an unconditional lifetime guarantee on it. Right. And I took a video of that at ATA here in 2020. I'll put that in the, I'll put a link to that in the description of the podcast. Okay. So people can it. find that for it. So, well, it's been great talking to you. And I like seeing guys your age with your enthusiasm about archery. Well, it's, you know it's, what? it's because of people. looking for a job, do you? <laughs> no. Well, unless you can pay me, unless you can pay me better than teaching and move my family to Wisconsin. Uh, I'm stuck where I'm at. But anyhow, folks, I'm going to keep talking with Kaz here off air. I appreciate you listening. Again, if you want to be on the podcast, AverageHeckArchery at gmail.com, as well as on all the social media platforms and on YouTube. Hope you're able to get outside, enjoy the sport of archery, archery hunting if you so choose. Definitely enjoy God's beautiful creation, and we'll get to see you next time.